Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to Project Zion podcast. This is your host, Robin Linkhart, with another Open Topics episode, focusing on something of keen interest as we journey in faith, seeking understanding. Today, our topic is focused on a brand new commentary of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is due to be released in early March and will be featured during World Conference 2019 in April. The official title of this new commentary is The Community of Christ Commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants, The Joseph Smith Jr. Era, Volume 1. And we're going to hear all about that today, including Volume 2. And our special host today is the author of this text. He is retired Apostle Dale Luffman, a dear, dear friend and highly respected colleague. Dale has had a huge impact on my discipleship and ministry as a professor during my seminary graduate studies, as well as my field apostle. I had the distinct joy and privilege to serve side-by-side with Dale as his field missionary coordinator in 70 from 2007 to 2010, and I am just delighted to have him with us today. Welcome, Dale. Well, thank you. So, Dale, a lot of our listeners are new to Community of Christ and don't have the um, privilege of knowing a lot about you. And those that do know you well as apostles serving the church for many years may not know a whole lot about your background. So we'd like to hear about your growing up, your background in the church, a little bit about your family, and how you came to be a full-time minister with Community of Christ and some of the things um, that you have done and places you've served during your tenure with the church. Wow, <laughs> an opportunity. <laughs> well, um, I um, am a, a child who was um, uh, a born in a rural area of Oregon, about 35 miles south of Portland, in an area that at the time was known as the very capital of the world. Uh, just outside of Woodburn, Oregon, living on a small farm and uh, struggling to make ends meet, I learned a great deal about life and the significance of of being close to the earth and of the created order, but also something of the our life together in the fellowship of the church. Um, the church was important to my parents. My mother was a, uh, a fifth-generation reorganized Latter-day Saint with beginnings in her tradition that go back to the Far West era. My father was a convert to the church just a month before I was born. So the tradition was uh, extremely important in our family life. I um, grew up in the church. I, as a teenager, mm, not so much um, of uh, being pleasured at being in the services and doing all the things, but uh, found my way to encounter some things that uh, just absolutely changed my life and 
identified a call um, to me in which it just would not let me go. And uh, I found myself pursuing the direction that I was enticed uh, to pursue. I was uh, ordained uh, as a in my late teens. Uh, I was uh, a pastor when I was 22 years old of the congregation in which I grew up in. And I found myself, uh, uh, as Judy and I met uh, and married, um, with her uh, pursuing the kind of discipleship that um, seemed to claim our lives. And it wasn't long until uh, as we uh, lived together, we, we sensed a call for full-time ministry. Before we entered World Church Appointment in 1979 and found ourselves in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, uh, went from coast to coast, uh, both Judy and I had uh, been involved in public education. I had picked up a master's degree in counseling psychology and was involved in uh, in counseling and child development issues. Uh, later, I engaged uh, in my early appointee career in theological studies at Princeton Theological Seminary and uh, Upon graduation from with my master's there, my assignment changed uh, from the East Coast to Kirtland, Ohio, where I served in a very interesting time in, uh, in, as the stake president there for six and a half years. Uh, with other uh, assignments, it took me to ultimately being called in the Council of Twelve, in which I served for 19 years. Uh, we served under church appointment for over 34 years, then uh, found ourselves with the opportunity to retire and move back to Oregon. Uh, our move back to Oregon was an occasion for us to move to the dry side of the Cascades, which is the high desert country. And so we enjoy all the amenities of Oregon. I frequently say uh, we enjoy the left coast and enjoy our opportunities that are here for uh, continuing to serve the church and uh, uh, provide ministry in retirement. Uh, I've taken the adage of uh, Roy Cheville with regard to retirement. The retirement is simply getting a new set of tires. And that's what I'm trying to do. That is a wonderful overview of your very full life of discipleship and ministry, Dale. You um, retired from the Council of Twelve at World Conference 2013, is that correct? That is correct. And then you stayed on with the church for a year or two until your full retirement age. So what year did you um, retire officially from? I retired at the end of 2013. Okay, end of 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that, listeners, that is not to say that Dale has not been fully engaged in the life of the church uh, and serving on a professor with Community of Christ Seminary, as well as authoring several books um, for the church and providing ministry in the field as he is called upon. And um, you continued with your relationship with the National Council of Churches for a period of time as well, didn't you? Yes, I continued uh, as uh, uh, <clears throat> serving on the Board of Governors. I was instrumental in 
of directing our involvement in the National Council of Churches over the last several decades and uh, securing membership in the National Council of Churches. Uh, I've been on the Faith and Order Commission of the National Council of Churches for about a decade and a half, and I continue to serve on the Faith and Order Commission of the National Council of Churches, which is the theological uh, commission for the National Council of Churches. Yes, significant involvement and leadership you provided and continue to provide. Now, you have been involved in a really significant project, a new commentary for the Community of Christ Doctrine and Covenants, as I mentioned in the introduction. And when did this project begin, and, and what was the impetus? Like, what got this going to start with? Oh, it's a long story. Um, I, I think the, the real impetus at the heart of it um, has always been that I've, I've been attracted to Scripture, period. Uh, that goes back to the very early sense of call that Scripture is a part of our discipleship. When Grant McMurray became the prophet president of the church, he placed quite a bit of significance on scriptural literacy. And that that just pleasured my heart and stimulated some things to say, okay, if scriptural literacy is important, and I think it is, then we need to make available to people the kind of resources and helps, or at least direct them to where helps and resources are that can enable that literacy to grow and responsible interpretation be present in the life of the church. There's a lot of irresponsible material and a lot of irresponsible perspectives that exist in the world. And I I just heard a an opportunity to be a part of perhaps a positive corrective of a lot of the ground clutter out there. Part of the impetus that came out of that was that I was a part of the theological task force now called the Theological Formation Team that designed and created our uh, statement on scripture. People like Tony Shavala Smith and others were critically involved, including Peter Judd, in that statement. That statement, I think, was very important for the church. It gave us the template out of which to interpret and move forward as a community in understanding scripture. It was out of that statement and out of my encounter with questions and issues around the Book of Mormon that drove me to create uh, that text on the Book of Mormon's witness um, to its first readers that was published uh, a few years ago in 2013. I think that's made an important contribution to people who have any sense of the Book of Mormon and wanting to interpret it. It's not the end all. It's not the only way to view it. But I think it it provided access to the text and a framework of understanding to those who were interested in such things. As I moved toward retirement and I was engaged in conversations with Steve Vesey, both of us lifted up, well, I'm not interested in hanging it all up. <laughs> I'd like to be able to um, take my life and, and uh, uh, project that into the future. And what has all this experience 
contributed to? How can that be harvested for perhaps other things that can contribute to the scriptural literacy of the church? And we, we talked about several things, but one of the things that just came up was the abject need for a commentary on the Doctrine of Covenants. The commentary that we have on the Doctrine of Covenants today, um, pardon me, F. Henry Edwards, but it's wholly inadequate and embarrassing. <laughs> it was first published in 1938, and it really wasn't a textual commentary. It was more F. Henry Edwards' musings on the historical context of these texts and all the personalities that were involved. There was more in that about who was called to be what, when, in the quorum's councils and orders of the church than there was of scriptural exegesis and commentary. For preachers and teachers in the church, it was wholly inadequate and had been for a long time. Uh, Steve and I, I, I think Steve got really excited about the about the about this prospect, and I committed that I would begin to take on this after we got settled, after our move. And that's what we've, we've done. I've had a lot of good support for that. I've had wonderful readers that have given me critical feedback, like yourself, Robin. And uh, it's been a project that has exacted a lot out of me, but it's been a, a project of discovery. And those who have read the manuscript and commented on it uh, have given me back a lot of a good feel for what is being done and a, a sense of expectation of how that will contribute to the church, to understanding the unique text that the Doctrine of Covenants is and its place in the life of our preaching and teaching in the church. I want to spend some time now um, having you describe how the commentary will be framed. As a member of the reader review team, I am aware that what we've seen so far uses a specific way of kind of walking through um, each section of the text and addressing several aspects of consideration. Please kind of give us an overview of what that frame is going to look like in the final product. Okay. Well, as you know, I have uh, been around academic settings and commentaries and all sorts of other things associated with uh, pursuing graduate degrees in theology, uh, both at Princeton Theological Seminary and my doctorate at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And having had a lot of exposure to biblical commentaries, uh, you learn uh, very quickly which ones uh, work best and which ones are really valuable that uh, help you in your teaching and preaching and writing. And so I guess I have to confess, I've uh, reflected on what do I see as uh, as value-added kind of commentaries, and how could that be accessed as we construct a commentary on the Doctrine of Covenants? And, and uh, so basically, we tried to draw from that, from the best models with biblical exegesis. Um. What we decided to do was a, a simple four-step kind of consideration of every text. And every, every text will begin with an introduction, 
And it's a simple one, two, or three paragraph way of bringing the reader through the front door of the text and beginning to sit down in the living room of conversation. That's what we've tried to do with the introduction. And once we set people down in the living room of conversation, we'll begin to look at the historical and theological background of the text. How did we come to this moment? What is the the environment? What are the issues and considerations here that we likely want to be aware of so that we can interpret in an adequate and responsible way what the text is saying, first of all, to its first readers, and consequently to others who come along at other periods of time and hear that text and are encountered by that text. Once we've situated ourselves comfortably on the couch in the living room, understanding the setting, then we move to a third section of the of the of the consideration of each one of the sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, and that would be the commentary and exegesis. And we don't take every word and every phrase <laughs> that's a part, but we take the primary um, critical words and phrases and concepts and consider those as how they are meaningfully contributing to what the larger text is trying to say and uh, so that we understand the language the concepts, the theological judgments that are there, whether we're aware of them or not, what the background, what the circumstances are that are construing that text to be what it is, all of that will be considered in that third component of of, uh, commentary and exegesis. And once we're done with that third category, we move on to what I think is really important. What is the significance of that text to its first readers. In other words, the first readers sat in a different place than I sat, or that I sit, as a person in the 21st century. The first readers may have been a 19th century reader, or an early 20th century reader. Whatever their setting of life is, I'm wanting to look at that text, or at least try to look at that text through their eyes. What significance would that text have for them? And once having shared a little bit of a a summary of that, to move to what might that text be be saying to a contemporary reader. So in every one of the sections, and that will begin with section one and end with the last section in the second volume of the commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants, we will follow that, that format of those five five distinct consideration areas. Some are different than others because every one of those texts are different, so the treatment will be different. Some of the, um, the commentary on a text may just be a couple of pages, some a whole lot more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have certainly appreciated the way that you have chosen to frame the commentary and it makes so much sense 
to me as someone who does try to access excellent commentaries and conversations, theological conversations on a variety of scriptural texts and a new one on the Doctrine and Covenants, I think will be embraced and used very, very well. Now, one of the other things we do, uh, Robin, is that not only is there a preface with acknowledgments uh, there, but before you even get into the commentary, there are some resources to help get into the commentary. They, they get us off the front porch and in the door. <clears throat> and um, one of those uh, is <clears throat> the role of Scripture and community of Christ, to say something about Scripture and community of Christ. So we have a framework of of invitation. Um, secondly, there is uh, an aid for preachers and teachers in the church. How how might you use this resource in light of our understanding of Scripture in the community of Christ? And then we also have um, uh, an article on the development of the Doctrine and Covenants during the era of Joseph Smith, Jr. for the first volume, so that we get a, a picture of how that text developed. It is complemented uh, as well by such things as a glossary of words that are, are rather technical from the exegetical tradition, but also technical from the era in which those texts arise. And uh, it's important. One of the exciting things was also to create a chronological cross-reference of the materials. The Doctrine and Covenants just didn't come to be out of a vacuum. It was actually in one of the iterations of an attempt to publish these inspired documents uh, that began with a publication in the in the Evening and Morning Star, an attempt to publish in the Book of Commandments, and then a publication then in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants and successive Doctrine and Covenants, and to, to kind of see the relationships of those uh, texts as they came to be available to the public that was the church and the manner in which the public could access that for the preaching and teaching and the life of the church at the time. I think that's really important so that those resources complement, support, and help to interpret what is being read in each of those sections. Yes, I love it. I can't wait to see the final product. And Me too. <laughs> everything you're mentioning, um, I, I've been aware of some of those pieces. It sounds like... Um, the uh, feedback received has added a few extra dimensions to that extraneous uh, support material um, beyond the commentary on each of the sections. So that will be a fabulous resource. Without a doubt, um, projects have challenges and I am going to make the assumption that your challenge has not, your project has not been without challenge. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you've encountered um, during your work in writing to this point? Well, one of them is always a challenge of any writer about almost anything. What do you include and what do you exclude? 
Um, and so one of the challenges has been to pinch myself from time to time and say, who is my audience and what is significant here? And I think that's a, we, we might call that discernment. <laughs> um, at times I'm, I'm better at that than at other times. And uh, no doubt the commentary itself will have better places and, and not so as as good a places. Uh, um, it's it's a, a human product. Uh, my humanity will show through significantly. But I think that's been one of the challenges for me is just to say, what gets included? What doesn't? It, what is it that the audience needs to know? What might the audience be curious about? And sometimes it's not so much that they need to know, but you know, this is a, one of those curious factors that claim the attention of the hearers, and perhaps it might pleasure their hearts, too. And there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the joys of your work, and how has this project made your heart sing? I think you touched a little bit on that heart singing when you gave the early seeds of this project. Tell us how it has continued to do that. Well, I think... Um, being able to sit down and begin to responsibly exegete Scripture, no matter what the text is in Scripture, Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, one of the joys that come to me is that encounter. I look for the Holy Spirit to speak, often to my heart, stimulating ideas in my mind, opening up horizons that had not been there before. One of the joys is just discovery and then sharing that discovery with others. Uh, I think that's been one of my joys here uh, in in the work. Uh, also, just seeing the evolution of the text, because when we started, it wasn't exactly the way it is ultimately become. And part of that evolution of the text has not been me. It's been my editor, Peter Judd, working with me, asking questions, pushing back, uh, pondering my readers like yourself and others, asking more questions, pushing back, asking for clarification, sharing their delight and wonder of what's there that has continued to stimulate my delight and wonder, having the first presidency sit down and, and offer their critique and their ideas and realizing that they're on the, they're delighted in what is occurring and uh, contributing to the clarity and the specificity of what is there so that it will speak to the church and be of a help to the church. The joy comes in the potential of seeing this contribute to the scriptural literacy and the formation of faith and discipleship in the life of the church. Mm, amen to that. Inquiring minds want to know, did you find any surprises along the way? And then just along the project line, were there surprises as the project unfolded? I think there was a lot more work to it than I thought there was going to be. <laughs> Surprise! Um, but the surprise is the support for this project has been immense. Every place I go in the church, people are saying, well, how is it coming? When will it be out? What do I? And then 
to hear feedback that when President Vizi is out in places, he's promoting it. There were a couple of members of the Council of Twelve that I know that are promoting it. Uh, one of the, uh, you know, both, oh, well, the whole First Presidency uh, mentions it when they're out. The fact that it is a text for the church and is being received and held up in that way just pleasures my heart. It delights, you know, that's significant. I think that the significant, one of the surprises was, is discovering personalities, uh, particularly in the second volume as I'm getting into it. And I know this is just a little off of the first, but to come to appreciate the unique contributions of each one of the prophet presidents of the church, not just Joseph Smith Jr. But I've come to have a great deal of appreciation for Israel A. Smith and the transitional figure he was Mm. in what the reorganization came to be and the community of Christ has emerged as being. I did not have that appreciation for him. In fact, I probably was a bit dismissive of his leadership in the life of the church prior to being engaged in this project. He was far more significant than I had anticipated, and I hope that shows in fact, the modern church of Community of Christ would not be with what it is if he had not been asking some of the initial questions. Case in point, he was wanting the church to deal with the issue of baptism for the dead long before the church was ready to jettison that mm-hmm. esoteric idea. And he really pushed hard. It wasn't until his brother became president of the church that finally it was able to move on. But his brother had been a part of that first presidency at the time that Israel was pushing on that sort of thing. That's not the only issue. There are quite a few issues that uh, he was breaking ground before we even knew the ground ground needed to be broken. Exciting. So you heard it here first, listeners. We already have a teaser for volume two, and volume one is just around the corner, so we can hardly wait. (laughs) You've already touched a little bit on the hopes for this resource across the church. Are there any other hopes for this resource um, in the church that you haven't mentioned? And I also want to push a little bit and talk about the hopes for readership beyond uh, the membership proper of Community of Christ. I hope it's a usable text for persons who are not only members of the church, but persons who want to understand a little bit about who and why Community of Christ. I, I think the Doctrine of Covenants is a wonderful means of opening windows to see community of Christ in its development, particularly the manner in which those texts of Joseph Smith Jr., I've got to confess, they go through a prism of bias, of my hermeneutical privilege and my hermeneutical lens, which are looking at those in light of being a member of a 21st century community of Christ community. And there's, you know, I want to confess up front, I'm looking at those texts through the eyes of one who stands firmly in this tradition. And that's going to offer an interpretation and invite an interpretation 
uh, by the reader that understands that. I think we tried to be pretty clear about that in the commentary, but I think it, it warrants being said uh, up front. As, as a result, uh, the resource, I think, has the potential of being overheard by others. I'm going to be involved in a Book of Mormon consultation in October at the University of Utah. Uh, it's it's a more of an ecumenical community around the Book of Mormon. In fact, it's chaired by a Pentecostal uh, who I actually had as a as a student uh, as teaching him about the Book of Mormon in a graduate course for him while he was on sabbatical. And he's excited to, to read the Book of Mormon from various disciplines and perspectives and is invited. I'm, I'm pondering how to talk about the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, or how the Doctrine and Covenants supports some of and gives interpretation to some of the developments that arise out of the Book of Mormon. Um, I haven't decided how to do that, but there's there's a paper in the office. And and so I see the Doctrine of Covenants not as isolated, but very connected. In, in a sense, it is a commentary on the traditions that have preceded the Doctrine of Covenants. <laughs> and it gives enlightenment to the larger tradition. You know, I think we need to overhear it in that kind of way. Very interesting. We know that there are two volumes planned, and the uh, first volume will be released in early March. We know that the second volume subtitle will be The Era of the Reorganization and Community of Christ. Do you have a forecast on completion of volume two to final product? Well, it just all depends on how the readers and editors are going. Our readers are currently reading the material of Joseph Smith III, as you can intimately uh, attest. When those parts are read and they're back for me on initial edits, uh, those readers will be receiving the materials that have already been written uh, that cover Frederick M. Smith, Israel A. Smith, and W. Wallace Smith. And uh, then when they are done with those, the materials are currently being written. I'm toward the end of my first drafts of, of uh, uh, Wallace B. Smith's. It gets more difficult as I get uh, uh, toward the end because I don't have the advantage of historical distance. Temporal distance is an extremely important part of interpretation and an important part of the hermeneutical task. And without that distance, it's hard to determine perspective and significance. So quite frankly, I am finding that the most difficult part of writing this commentary is the latter part of uh, Wallace B. Smith's part, and then getting into Grant McMurray and Stephen Vesey's prophetic pieces. It may require us to kind of adjust the model 
to do what it is that needs to be done mm -hmm. simply because of the proximity to the text. So that's where we are, and that's where the fun is. And uh, I am entering uh, the more difficult portion of the task. Timing-wise, uh, I'm hoping to have the these materials completed by world conference time from my first draft so that the, the, the publication will be in late 2019 or early 2020 for the second volume. Wow, that is great. I, I, That's our hope. I didn't dare hope. That sounds very exciting. The Joseph Smith Jr. era will be published early March, released, and then we expect kind of a splash um, publication or publicizing of that release at World Conference 2019, which is April 6th through the 13th, and the weekend before opening session will be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the dedication of the Independence Missouri Temple. Our readers and listeners want to know how can we purchase the first volume, who's publishing it, and Dale, we want to know, are you going to be at World Conference, and will there be an opportunity to meet the author and have our book autographed? Okay, well, the first one, yes, uh, the, the publication will be out by the time of World Conference, and yes. we want to make sure that people know that it's available. It will be available. It is being published by Herald Publishing Company, Herald House. It will be under their moniker, uh, and the first edition will be hardback. It will be the same size as the volumes of Mark Shearer's uh, uh, the journey of a people, mm -hmm. and uh, so it. Uh, we hope it will be just placed right beside Mark's volumes, so that and and quite frankly, intentionally, they are complementary in their design and development, and uh, I think will be complementary resources in the life of the church. It will not only be available for Merrill House, but uh, we haven't worked out the details, but there will be. Uh, some kind of uh, venues for signing uh, the purchase of the the volumes, and we certainly want to have not only the, to autograph the volumes, but the conversations that emerge, because that's the value in such a commentary is. It's the conversation that goes on between me and that text when I first read it, but the conversation that that leads to with me and others who read that text so that there is an enhanced understanding, the, the place where the Holy Spirit is at work, uh, stimulating not only our knowledge of, but also our understanding of those texts in the life of the community and the world. That's exciting. I know people will want a chance to meet meet you and have conversations with you, Dale. And if memory serves me correctly, you often uh, make your way to the John Whitmer Historical Association meetings and present from time to time at those meetings. Yes, yeah, yeah, that is correct. In fact, uh, there is a volume that recently was published by John Whitmer Historical Association 
I I have a, a volume, I mean, or something in it. It was about the the development um, of the Doctrine and Covenants in the early reorganization and the impact of the Nauvoo edition in 1844 on that development and on quite frankly, the move toward canonization of the Doctrine and Covenants. That was an open question, and it wasn't answered until the latter part of the 1870s, whether or not that would become the critical canon of the church or not. Or would it just be Joseph Smith III's father's text? Fascinating. an ongoing open canon, will there be a development? And so, uh, yeah, I presented a paper in that regard at the John Whitmer Historical Association. I continue to be a member of it. Yes, indeed, and we are very grateful. Dale, is there anything that you want to say or that I didn't ask you about? We'd love to hear anything else. Well, I I just hope that this particular project has significance and meaning for the church. Uh, it's it's always helpful to have conversation partners when we are engaged in the things about faith. Uh, we can become real cranks and narrowly disturbed if it's just us and the text. Texts are always meant to lay in the lap of the church. And my concern is that we have the kind of resources, good resources, competent resources, responsible resources that can aid and facilitate the conversation. My hope is that these two common, these two volumes of the commentary on the Doctrine of Covenants for Community of Christ will contribute to that conversation about who and what the Community of Christ is and its mission, message, identity, and beliefs. Thank you so much. And listeners, I want you to know that you can find additional episodes featuring Dale. Uh, One is on Common Grounds, Lint, and another is on his Book of Mormon, uh, review of his book on the Book of Mormon, which was very interesting. Additionally, we will post a link to Community of Christ Statement on Scripture, which Dale talked about earlier in this interview, and you can take a peek at that. Dale, thank you so, so much for being with us today. It has been wonderful to not only hear about this project, but to have a window into your life and journey as a faithful disciple and servant minister in the life of community of Christ. Well, uh, Robin, I'm not sure what, uh, I'm, I'm sure that there is life after the commentary, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure what that will bring, but my hunch is I will continue to find myself giving expression um, to what has become a part of my life in writing and in teaching and in preaching and in, you know, seminars. I, I've got several, uh, well, several seminars in, uh, in various fields uh, that are on the calendar that are upcoming and will be engaged in those. And I, I hope that that continues to be a part of the future because not only do I think I have something to contribute in those moments, but somehow it contributes to me in a healthy and 
provocative way. Indeed. For those of you listening, thank you for joining us today as we explore a new commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants and consider the many ways that our journey as a people of faith in community has grounded us in the mission and message of Jesus Christ found in Scripture and through continuing revelation continues to shape and form and call us to be the people of God in this time and in this place. This is your host, Robin Linkhart, and you are listening to Project Zion Podcast. Go out and make the world a better place. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Thank you.